0: Welcome to this, the fourth in our series of podcasts for the Spectator's Economic Innovator of the Year Awards for 2021, sponsored by Charles Stanley Wealth Managers. I'm Martin van der Weer, I'm the business editor of the Spectator, the weekly business columnist, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here to Exeter. That's where we are for the semi final for the West and Southwest region if you've listened to our earlier podcast you'll know we had a record number of entries this year more than 150 from across the whole country and it's particularly interesting to me that we've had entries from quite small towns and remote places across the country so today we've met an entrant from Cornwall another one from Shepton Mallet and a third one From Swindon. So, one observation you can certainly make this year is that entrepreneurship is widely spread geographically. It isn't clustered in the way that you might sometimes expect it to be. There are entrepreneurs everywhere, and that must be a good thing. So, I'm joined by three guest judges today. I will ask them to introduce themselves in a moment, and we've got three companies to talk about. So, let me first of all introduce our guest judges firstly Chris Harris Deans who is the uh, representative of Charles Stanley here in Exeter. Chris just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Hello hi I'm Chris Um, I'm an investment manager here in the Exeter office of Charles Stanley um, as well as helping out a number of offices around the country. It's fascinating to be involved in an organization that is helping people with their finances in a time that's been particularly difficult over the past couple of years and then also to look at the work we do analysing companies for companies' portfolios and then putting that alongside some of the businesses we've been seeing today um, about how they're growing and how they're innovating in the business world that we currently find ourselves in. So it's been a fascinating time to be involved with this awards.
0: Thank you very much Chris. So our second judge today is Richard Cobb who is a solicitor with Mitchell Moores in Exeter but with a background in the tech sector. Richard, tell us about yourself.
2: Hi there. Um, Yes, my name is Richard Cobb. I'm the senior partner of Mitchell Moores, which is a large top 100 UK law firm. My day job is being a corporate lawyer, which I've been doing for over 25 years in London and in the South. Um, And I'm here because I'm particularly involved in our move to support early stage companies with their fundraisings and all the related uh, aspects of growing a business. Again, particularly interested to see the sort of quality that's coming through this towards process. Um, and the diversity of good stuff that's coming through. Um, so really I'm, I'm coming here with the perspective of having advised on lots of companies going places um, and always interested in new ideas.
0: Thank you. And our third judge today is Nicholas Hardy. Nick Hardy who's worked for a number of major public companies in the treasury function in project management. Has also worked for a Regional Housing Association in the Southwest. Nick, thank you for joining us. Tell us about yourself.
3: Well I call myself a finance professional, I leave others to judge how professional, but um, as Martin says I've had a largely commercial career in a range of different sectors and these days I spend my time sitting on boards of uh, not-for-profit organisations, charities and uh, in one case a renewable energy company. My association with the region is that I live in Somerset uh, and that I was a student at Exeter during the nineteen seventies. I'm delighted to be participating in this session.
0: And I guess since the nineteen seventies it's all changed quite radically really around here. I wonder about before we start on the companies, I'm going to come back to Chris for a moment, the kind of business atmosphere in the Southwest and in Exeter itself, do you think do you feel the recovery or do you feel it's still struggling to come out of the Pandemic phase?
1: No, I mean, uh, I think Exeter itself, in terms of the business community, has been very resilient during this time. The Southwest itself has a lot of tourism, which initially um, struggled a bit, but actually has really had a boom time since things reopened and people weren't travelling abroad. So that's really helped a number of our uh, businesses down here. But I think from the professional services industry, again, done really well. I think we offer. A very good alternative to some of the larger uh, major cities around and I think we have a very good network um, with everyone helping each out, other out locally and you know Nick said he was here in the 1970s um, going to university I was in the 1990s um, so I went to Exeter University and have never left the area um, from that and you've been able to have a career and build one from I think a, a fascinating part of the world and a very enjoyable place to live and work
0: good well it's lovely to be here for this trip today. Anyway, let's talk about the three companies we've met. Their names are Bauer Collective, which is a consumer business selling household goods and personal care products online with a particular angle on uh, recyclable, reusable packaging. CCM Technologies, which is a clean tech business producing fertilizers in a very low carbon way and psychiatry UK something completely different which is online psychiatry services using a large number of psychiatrists in this country and elsewhere uh, for consultations online for UK patients so those are the three things they're very different as always we have a, a challenge to compare businesses that are in absolutely different sectors so there is an element of subjectivity in our judging But on the whole, we enjoy meeting all of them and we we see the good in all of them. So let's start with Bauer Collective. Nick, just give us a little description of the company, but tell us what you liked about it or perhaps what you disliked about it. Okay.
3: Well, Bauer is, as Martin has said, um, an organization that is determined to get as close to net zero carbon in a business to consumer environment. I think it is uh, not unique in what it does but I think its USP is all to do with the recycling of its packaging and Marcus Hill who spoke to us uh, explained this in some detail. What I like about it is the fact that um, it's based in quite a deprived part of Somerset actually so I think there is um, a regional dimension to this business which is appealing. It's a young business, it started in 2019. And both of its principal promoters have a good track record in doing things which demonstrate their commitment to the environment. They operate a subscription model and an e-commerce model and they source 90% of their products from the UK so they're dealing with the issue about the footprint of international transport uh, and that I think is all very commendable. It's grown quite quickly from a standing start. It's clear that the promoters do have experience There are issues that they will have to grapple with, not least um, that they do operate in an environment where there are other people who are doing very similar things. But I like the dynamic, uh, I like the regional uh, dimension to it. The product, of which we've been given a glimpse, is appealing. We spent some time talking about the challenge of coming up with packaging, which doesn't have too much of a carbon impact, and they are getting to grips with this business of recycling and reusing plastic uh, which is so crucial in the current environment challenges for them the the logistical challenges and whether or not they can really persuade people to operate the subscription offer which i think is set to become their bread and butter
0: yeah thank you it's a very big product range 300 products range so my thought in my mind was whether they can establish a really well recognized brand with such a huge product range you can see that you could have a brand that's strong in personal care you might have another brand that's strong in household products but across 300 products that's quite challenging Richard what was your reaction to that one? I think it's
2: solving a really big problem so I think they're going to find there'll be a uh, it may be a minority initially, but there, there will be a sizable number of people who are very driven by the packaging waste and re- eliminating that from the way they live their lives. So you're getting very passionate, sort of purpose-driven client base. Ultimately, a lot will depend on the service levels and the quality of the products, but actually solving the plastic packaging aspect about buying those products that nearly always come in plastic is actually a really good idea.
0: Yeah. Chris?
1: Yeah, and the fact that they, they had their own sort of in-house products as well as bringing in some of the others. You can attract people from different areas if certain individuals necessarily attracted by particular brands that they may be able to get um, via them, that may then move them onto some of their own brands as well. So I think that was quite a clever way to be able to to pull a wider uh, customer base to start with.
0: Yeah. So the packaging technique is that they have a, a, a pouch which you return the packaging in and they will have a QR code soon on the products, as I understand it, which would tell the customer how many times that piece of packaging, whether it's the bottle with the sanitizer in it or whatever it is, has been reused. So for the eco-conscious consumer, he said his typical customer is probably female and about 30, probably single and so on. But for that very, very important and increasingly affluent consumer bracket, these considerations are very important. So let's move on to our second company we heard from today, CCM Technologies. We heard from Pavel Kizlovsky, if I hope I've pronounced that correctly. And this is a clean tech business in the fertilizer sector. And I'm going to ask Richard to kick off and talk about it, if you would.
2: Yeah, I mean, for for a company that's already got thirty-seven patents and forty-three coming to summarise quite a complicated technology in a soundbite is a challenge for a lawyer. Um, so, <laughs> but in a, in a nutshell, what they've managed to achieve is a way of solving multiple problems. Really, they are basically producing a fertilizer which is a bit better for farmers and uh, for soil um, improvement out of waste using waste organic product and some offshoot of other you know well known things that you need for fertilizer like CO2 in a way which basically has a fantastic um, approach in terms of uh, carbon sequestration and achieving net zero. And the, the thing that appealed to me particularly was the driving force for why farmers would actually switch to this. Um, it's not more expensive, it is actually better for their soil, but most importantly their customers who ultimately are people who buy potatoes to make crisps or whatever it is, it's the, the end consumers, uh, the end um, food manufacturers um, are, are now able, with this sort of technology, to insist that farmers use it because it allows them to show that their supply chain is doing some good. So I, I think there are a lot of sort of regulatory and political drivers to why somebody might effectively switch to a product which is a little bit better and a little bit cheaper. I say that for, for all of those sort of commercial reasons I felt was a fantastic, um, fantastic business. Um, and you know it's already reasonably well advanced it's all um, apart from the patents they've got they've you know institutional investments from 56 different institutions they're they're already looking at it as a global market Um, and for frankly a company that's employing 18 people able to already have achieved that much is hugely impressive so um, for me I think it's a fantastic company Um, I think that you know the, the limitations must be you know it, obviously, you just can't pop up a plant using that sort of number of patents um, incredibly quickly. So, it's how much bandwidth do they have and how much money do they need to really get it to as far and as fast as it needs to be? Because obviously, the global market for fertiliser is absolutely enormous. Um, and the, the other benefit for it, I think, in some, you know, it does tick a lot of the UN sustainable goals, but the fact that it is something that could be very usefully deployed in development areas and that the, the um, pavel mentioned africa in particular but you know there are, there are huge benefits of having really good locally sourced eco-friendly fertilizer um, for the planet so i actually thought you know it ticked a lot of boxes and was a really really well run business already
0: yeah so it, it is in very simple terms it's able to process animal slurry which is a gigantic environmental problem and chemicals extracted from wastewater from water utilities i think it's part of the formula we he he talked about rwanda as a potential site for you know a sort of experimental expansion of the business and that they could take a, a processing plant in 340 foot containers to rwanda and and set this up and calibrate the product to the crops that are grown in, in that country, in that region, so it, it clearly is a business with a, the potential to scale up internationally. That's ver- that's very clear. Chris, what did you think?
1: And I, I thought the very interesting bit was about talking about collaboration with other organisations and companies. that On the face of it, you might think we're competitors, but actually, that everyone in that sort of industry in that space is working together to make a better product and to make things better and more environmentally friendly and actually they need each other's help and support in order to do that rather than to be working against everyone and I thought that that was sort of quite different from what you don't necessarily hear about all the time and quite exciting as well to to add on to to the business.
0: And when I asked him what's the biggest constraint he said it's regulatory, it isn't the supply problem and it isn't the competition, it's that governments don't quite get it in terms of licensing the use of waste products to turn them into something useful. Again, Nick, what was your observation?
3: I find myself thinking perversely, the more successful this business is, the more they may struggle to get the inputs they need in order to create the, the, the cycle. So, if waste water is a valuable source of potassium and nitrates, then if everybody adopts the product there will be no potassium or nitrate from wastewater. but I think we're a long way off that sort of uh, yeah. situation
0: I mean that's, that is clearly a business with a, a very valuable environmental purpose so we enjoyed hearing from Pavel so let's move on to our third one in an entirely different world from the first two and something that's probably unfamiliar to all of us as judges this is psychiatry UK, it does what it says on the tin as it were, this is online consultations with psychiatrists. We heard from John Chanter, a serial entrepreneur, not a psychiatrist himself, though his wife is a psychiatrist, he runs this business from his home in Cornwall and it's a very fast growing enterprise. Chris. What was yes. your observation?
1: John was very enthusiastic, and you know, really gave a, a strong picture about the business. And something on the face of it, you'd say, well, actually, it was quite simple. It was just a business that's already there in terms of psychiatrists um, doing their work, suddenly putting it online. But actually, had so many much more complications than that, um, and areas they had to go to. And it's the way the business can evolve in terms of you know not having to have people in your local areas and in fact not even necessarily having to have um, the psychiatrist in the UK to be able to support people within the UK and fascinating some of the challenges they he has to have to in terms of the technology platform they have to have and the advancements around that the security of data the ability for individuals to be able to actually have the, the video inputs and the recordings on there we talked and challenged enough about the different ways that it may feel to actually have a person-to-person meeting uh, face-to-face but at all whether to having it online and what the challenges were uh, around that. What the challenges to the business were there are a number of other businesses globally that do a similar thing but at the moment there is nothing else within the UK that has that so it is quite innovative around that and some great um, in terms of growth stories that he's been telling us over the last couple of years and for the next year or two to really be able to move forward, and then also the, the interesting way that it's set up in terms of the corporate structure of the organisation, so making it an LLP so that the psychiatrists feel very much part of the family um, in terms of the online service that's happening rather than the separate companies from that, so uh, a very interesting and exciting business.
0: And Nick, you sit on an NHS board and you've seen the NHS from the inside. What did you observe about the sort of potential friction between a venture like this and the bureaucracy or the the practice of the NHS?
3: Um, Well, first of all, the first thing to say, actually, to to answer your question directly, is that there's a lot going on in the NHS which mimics what they're trying to do. The idea of virtual consultation and clinics is not something that's unique to psychiatry. Um, In the, the eye hospital that I'm involved with, as a facility, increasingly, to analyse eye conditions, virtually. So the virtual thing is not that innovative. But I think that, particularly in areas of mental health, which is a very difficult area, this is a fundamental development. And I was very struck by the fact that he talked about the patient seeing the doctor, not the doctor seeing the patient, because a lot of what is happening in the health service at the moment is about is putting the patient at the heart of everything. Now, that's an easy thing to say, and it's rather more difficult to do when you're trying to organise a a hospital or something, or a a, a practice in a deprived area of London. But it's right, and so that impressed me. The friction between a business like this and the NHS is a natural friction because, of course, the NHS has to train psychiatrists, and it has to invest in development. And psychiatry UK doesn't have that burden, and so it can be much more
0: competitive on price. Yes, that's a very interesting point, Richard.
2: Yes, I mean I f- I felt it was really interesting that they had clearly developed a business which is not going to run um, in the other direction when people are able to demand in-person you know visitations like they have been arguing about with uh, with GP practices. Um, you know, psychiatry is a, is clearly something which is perfectly capable of being delivered without a physical examination and that sort of scalability was one of the real upsides of this business I think. I mean clearly the people who join the limited liability partnership are as, as Nick said is, have already been trained elsewhere but for quite a few of them this will be additional private work on top of their, their normal work which are, you know, a huge number of consultants do already. So there will, there will be a, quite a large number of people who, who could add this in to do some extra work and then some who think actually being fully private works for me at my stage in my career. There's no doubt on the other side of that the demand for support for mental health and mental illness has never been higher and um, so it's clearly in an area where there is there's inexorable demand. Um, and if, as long as they can continue to service that with good, good results and keep all the regulatory side of things um, properly managed, I think they could do, do great things.
0: Yeah, and we did, I mean, we had quite a long conversation with John and we, we probed him a bit about, first of all, the, the ethics of the business, were there any complications there? Secondly, about the regulatory side and the, the way in which they scrutinize themselves by having the doctors. Paired, So one doctor looking at another doctor's work in their system and so on. So he gave us reassuring answers on all of those things. The partnership model is interesting. Most of the companies we see are companies and they, they need capital and they bring in outside shareholders. In this case, he only needs capital when he needs to renew his systems, which he talked about. But other than that, it can go on expanding in a partnership form rather than needing to bring in outside capital. So there we are. He's got a 100 psychiatrists working for him. Some of them are not in the UK. Some of them are in India and other places. They're all obviously NHS-qualified psychiatrists. More coming in, a very rapidly expanding business. And as Richard says, right on the zeitgeist in the sense, mental health is is really uppermost in people's minds. So there we are. Those are our three contestants Semi-finalists for the West and South West region, we're moving on, later this week we're going to Edinburgh, we're going to meet some entrants from Scotland and Northern Ireland and then all of our judges are going to get together in London on the 6th of October and pick five regional winners, one overall winner and one winner in the category of environmental, social and governance. Excellence. We could certainly say that all three that we've seen today had a very strong ESG element in their business, in their strategies and in the beliefs of the founders. And it was a pleasure for us to meet three very different but very passionate entrepreneurs doing what they do. So uh, it's fun for us. I hope it's fun for everyone who's listening in to the podcast. And um, do tune in for more of these as we go along towards giving the awards in November. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you to my fellow judges here in Exeter today. Thank you.